What we're going to do is uh, I'm going to I'm going to finish this portion of our time together, and then we're going to take next Wednesday off, and then I'm going to start what I'm going to call the Community Legacy Series, and I'm going to take some some key political areas in our community and um, kind of give you uh, a, a constitutional republic view of the community and each of the roles that uh, key players have in the community, what they're to do. Um, Today I had lunch with a congressional candidate and uh, sat with him. And actually this person called me and uh, wanted my support. And I said, uh, listen, you can come and speak at the church, but I'll tell you the first thing that most of the folks that have gone through the Legacy Series are going to ask of you. And they go, what's that? And I said, what are the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution? He said, I, I don't know. And I said, do you know the, how many amendments are? No, I don't. I said, you need to learn all that. You've got to be prepared for that. You're going to be questioned on that because if you're going to swear to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, you better know what it is that you're swearing you know, to defend and the significance of it, especially biblically and, and, and what a constitutional republic is and why it's so significant. And to his credit, when I met with him today, he said there's seven articles and he listed them all. And he said and there's 27 amendments. He began to list them by memory. And I said, you've done your homework. I was real impressed. Um, so... This, this has an influence as you apply these things, and uh, I think as citizens, this is what we demand of anyone who wants to represent us. So tonight, um, I, I, I've shared with you a story in the past uh, about 1776, a critical stage in American history, and how it began in uh, January of 1776, and the British had occupied Boston, and Washington had the Continental Forces up on Dorchester Heights above above Boston, and he knew that when the snows thawed that the British would take over Dorchester Heights. They had no artillery to defend themselves, and he knew, Washington knew that they were in a lot of trouble, and they were just holding the the, the heights until the snows thawed and they were in trouble. And the 24-year-old bookseller from Boston by the name of Henry Knox came to him and said, I have an idea on how to get some artillery. And he said, what do you know about artillery? And Henry Knox replied, well, I've read a book. And uh, he said, well, what's your plan? He said, uh, the British left an enormous amount of armament at Fort Ticonderoga, and I figured out an engineering way to get those uh, over the mountains, over the lake, over the mountains, and then get them here to Boston. And he laid out the plan for Washington. He said, this is what I need in regards to supplies. Washington authorized it. Henry Knox took a, a, um, a squad of men and, and headed towards Fort Ticonderoga. It's one of the greatest engineering feats in American history, actually world history. Uh, what it took, he had to have sleds, also drawn carts by, by horse, and then wheels and transfer them. Two of the cannons fell into the lake. He was able to pull them both out through pulley systems and the like. He got all the artillery to Boston, I believe it was in March of 1776, and it was a fog-laden uh, night when he arrived. Um, and yet on Dorchester Heights, they were above the fog, and it was a moonlit night where it was completely clear. They were able to get all the artillery up on Dorchester Heights. As the fog lifted, they began to shell Boston. The British left, and they were rejoicing in their first victory for the Americans. And immediately that ushered them into the signing of the Declaration of Independence, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary. And we've gone through that, and we hold these truths to be self-evident. And they were so excited about it, and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And they laid it on the line, and they did that. As soon as they did that, July 4, 1776, the Continental Forces lost battle after battle after battle after battle until Washington was holed up on, uh, on Manhattan. And he was surrounded by the British. The fleet was coming in. They were going to get shelled, bombed, and it was over. And again, the fog protected them. It came over, all of that. The winds held off the British fleet. Washington put uh, cloth over the paddles of the boats and, and um, ferried all of his men across the East River where they escaped uh, British capture, although they took most of their munitions, but they escaped British capture, got up to Fort Ticonderoga um, and were able to winter, excuse me, not Fort Ticonderoga, uh, up to Valley Forge, and they were able to winter there uh, in Valley Forge. And as, you know, I've, I've shared this with you, 1776 is progressing. They've lost battle after battle. They've lost their most of their munitions, the, the men are ill-equipped. Conscriptions are going to be up January 1st of 1777. And he's going to lose this war and this experiment in liberty. And of the little less than 10,000 soldiers that are quartered at Valley Forge, um, a third of them are dying of dysentery. Um, a third of them don't have boots and have to wrap their feet in burlap sacks. And it, it was one of the worst winters on the eastern seaboard. 
And uh, Washington realized if he didn't secure a victory, the conscriptions would dissipate, the war would be over, nobody would fund the war. They were trying to get France to involve themselves in the war, but they didn't think that the Continental Army could hold it up, and they were concerned. So Washington devises a plan to attack the Hessians uh, in Trenton, which is 11 miles, and you have to cross the Delaware River, which was frozen. And um, he, he manifests this plan, but to inspire the troops, and, and by the way, what I'm sharing with you is it, it, these are these critical moments in history where a decision has to be made. If you haven't seen the movie Darkest Hour uh, in regards to May 1940 with Winston Churchill, when uh, Hitler had taken over all of Europe and Churchill was at a point where do we sign uh, a, uh, an appeasement peace accord through Mussolini with Hitler to surrender to him and or do we defend the island? And Halifax and... Um, uh, Neville Chamberlain wanted to to seek terms of surrender, and Churchill was struggling over that, and they'd formed the new government, and, and if they didn't, Halifax would resign, the entire structure of the parliament would implode, and the king of England was not in favor of, of uh, Churchill. And so this was one of the most critical moments in Western history. You got to go see the movie. It will inspire you. Uh, it doesn't come out theaters all over until, I think the 22nd, but it's playing at the, the uh, Westlake Twin Theaters, you know, that little tiny theater over by the Stone House. You know what I'm talking about? I went and saw it last night. I was in tears. Uh, an amazing movie. And this is a critical moment in human history where the English language saved the Western world. Um, and so with that, we find Washington wanting to inspire a ragtag group of men in the winter of 1776. It was actually December 24th. And I want to do kind of a Christmas message. And, uh, and I didn't want to repeat this, but I wanted to refresh your memory. So he sends out uh, a letter that was written by Thomas Paine called The American Crisis. And it says, these are the times that try men's souls, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot. Will this season shrink from the duty of their country? But those who defend it now deserve the love and respect of all men and women. And he passes this amazing article out by Thomas Paine, who happened to be an atheist and um, was imprisoned in the French Revolution and died penniless. But he was used of... Of, of all of those involved in the Revolutionary War to inspire the troops. And so, so Washington had this reprinted, the American crisis, passed out to all of his men and inspired them. And on December 24, 1776, again, one of the worst snowstorms on the eastern seaboard, they marched the 11 miles of Trenton. Uh, historians say they left a trail of blood, you know, seeping through the burlap sacks. Many died frozen on the way. They said they didn't move any faster than a baby would walk or crawl. And it was as though they were walking through milk and huge windstorms. And they crossed the Delaware and they attacked the Hessians uh, on December 25th, 1776, when most people were by their hearth and home enjoying the warmth. Only one in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. And, and uh, these soldiers had an enormous victory, overwhelming odds, but beat the Hessians. The French were so moved by it. Conscriptions increased. The French joined the war. And here we are today. Uh, enjoying this liberty for 241 years that really at that moment in time was almost over. And, and what is America today would never have been the case had it not been for that decision. And that's an epic in, uh, uh, in American history. But here we are uh, getting ready for Christmas. And I was thinking, what was another critical time in American history that culminates uh, to the Christmas of that same year? And uh, I was born in 1964, I'm the boomer generation, I'm the last of them, it was a pig in the python, you know, all the soldiers came back from war and got happy, and then the next thing you know, kids were born nine months later. I was the tail end of that, uh, 64 was the last year of the boomer generation, and uh, we're all going into the gray season, and, and actually if you followed the pig in the python of this large group of children born in America... You know, the starter homes were the big thing to do, and then you go to the larger homes, and then you, their first jobs, and then they, you know, now we're all, the big push now is to get uh, assisted living facilities, and I'm looking at them now and preparing. Um, but, but, but as this generation passes through the Python, you know what happens at the end, um, what's the future hold? And I was asked to go to Belmont Village uh, to speak um, to 29 veterans who were giving a, be, being given awards by the Congresswoman Brownlee and also the Admiral at the Naval Base. Um, and it was a, a, a project that had been started by a student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, who was a photographer, and he wanted to um, catalog the lives of these veterans that were in these assisted living facilities. 
And he said the first person he took a picture of, and he shared the picture, and it's in his book, and he wrote an amazing book, uh, was a man that was 19 years of age serving in Italy, and um, his commanding officer had been um, eviscerated by uh, a zip mine, and, um, and he was uh, wounded by it where it hit his abdomen. He took his belt, wrapped it around it with a cloth, continued fighting, took the position, went back to the aid station, stood in a line waiting to be tended. And as the medic was going up and down the line to seeing who was critical, here was this man standing there holding his stomach. He said, let me see your wound. He showed it and his intestines were in his hand. He said, you got to get to the front of the line at 19 years of age. He said, not until my men have been, been seen. No. And he waits his turn, gets there. He's He's healed, goes back to fighting, ends up getting awarded the Silver Star. Um, you know, just an amazing story. And this young guy's sitting there going, you know, I, I'm worrying about my girlfriend and, and uh, what's on social media. And here's a guy at 19 years of age worrying about whether he's going to live to see tomorrow defending Western civilization. And he said, it really struck me. And he said, I'm watching as each one of these veterans passes, so does a library pass with them. He said, I want to catalog them. Well, he got this contract through the uh, organization that owns Belmont Village. And uh, he started to catalog all these veterans and take these amazing pictures. And this organization that has these assisted living facilities honors each of these veterans, puts their pictures in the hallways, and they do this thing every year. And I was asked to come and speak. When I got there, the congresswoman didn't show up and the admiral didn't show up. So I was the keynote speaker. And uh, I watched as a brigadier general who had served in World War II, not as a general, obviously, but had risen to the rank of brigadier general, was the highest ranking um, um, resident uh, of this facility. He stood for all 29 of these veterans as they received this congressional award and saluted each one of them in his 90s, uh, wearing his full brigadier general uniform. And I was touched by this. And, And everybody was in tears. And the family members had come out. And the lady turned to me who oversees the facility. She said, the folks behind, there's not a generation behind them that has this this commitment uh, to these ideals. And I was moved by that. And and I thought, okay, what is our role? How do we get this to the next generation? And then having watched The Darkest Hour last night, I'm more inspired even now. And so I wanted to conclude all of the weeks we've had together with a Christmas message. And I I can't do it any better than uh, what what you're going to see tonight. Um, I'm going to walk you through some slides I've put together, but I, I want to share this with you. Uh, in our last gathering, and I was going to talk about Athens, but I wanted to conclude with this Christi- Christmas message. We did cover the Judeo-Christian heritage, and in a sense, we understand what a republic is, and I couldn't go through Athens, but I, I just wanted to conclude with this tonight. But as we looked last week at, at Jerusalem, and we saw this idea of, of creation, covenant, and king, and, 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 and no other civilization in the, in the world's history do we have a creation story that begins with nothing and that God is supreme over everything. Even with the Babylonians, even with the Greeks, they all begin with matter. But ex nihilo, as we covered in the previous study, this is out of nothing. God creates something and he hovers over all of creation. Well, then we come to this idea of a covenant and we talked about last will and testament, testamentum. The last will and testament when I did that for my children as I was going to Israel, they didn't need to be in attendance. My wife and I were signing this document for their benefit, and they didn't have to be a party in the contractual agreement. That's what God does in a covenant with his people. He makes a contractual agreement, and even if we don't fulfill our end, he fulfills his. And he made this with the nation of Israel. And this covenant even supersedes the change of their government, because as we know, they went into a theocracy because Moses was given the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And now they had a theocracy where they were governed by law and they were governed by God. And we know that Hammurabi considered himself to be a theocracy, but the law came after he declared himself to be uh, God. And, and it wasn't the same as, as the, the Jewish um, covenant and this concept of theocracy. And all men were subject to it and God had established it in the sense that we're living on his dirt, breathing his air, drinking his water, right? We live by his rules. And so they said, we want to be like the other kingdoms. We want to have a king instead of you. And as, and as the Lord said to Samuel, they're not upset with you. They're upset with me. Give them a king. So they gave him Saul and they gave him David. And we know how those stories went. Saul was terrible as a king. David committed adultery and his family split up in Absalom. And we saw the rebellion. And when Solomon took over, the kingdom split after he died. And it, and it was a very short-lived civilization as far as territory is concerned, right? But what was interesting is both Saul and David had both broken and violated God's law, this theocracy. They had both violated, even though they were in a, in a monarchy, they violated God's law. And in both cases, in, in, 
in Saul's case, it was Samuel who had addressed him and called him to account that you are not supreme over the law of God. You're accountable to the law of God. And, and a person, a, a regular citizen created in the image of God could hold the king accountable regardless of the government. And then David, when he had violated the law of God, who was it that called him to account? Nathan. And, and God honored both of those aspects. And so that's where we get this concept of the Magna Carta, that the king is held accountable to the law of God and no human being can supersede God's law. We're all bound by that. And that's where our founders had the law of nature and nature's God. We're all clear on that? And then uh, we can also see Samuel Rutherford in Scotland after John Knox, where he had this thing called Lex Rex, where when the king would go into a church, he said, I am supreme and I am, I am the head of the church. And, and these Scottish Presbyterians, what they were called covenanters, they said, no, 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 no. G- God is the head of the church. And when the king comes in, he's a subject just like everyone else is. Well, that was tyranny. And that's why they killed over 10,000 Scottish covenanters in Edinburgh in the grass market. And these Scottish covenanters ended up in Ireland establishing religious liberty. The British kicked them out of there. They came over to the United States. 70% of the Revolutionary War generals were Scottish covenanters. And basically what they were saying, and I'm Scottish, and that's why I like them uh, a whole lot. They're great people now, you know. (laughs) So when the British said, we're going, you need to submit, they finally said, look, you kicked us out of Scotland. You kicked us out of Ireland. We're not moving. And uh, they had a will to fight. Uh, I'm all for Congregationalists and a city on a hill and, and talking about William Bradford and all those. But the ones that won the Revolutionary War were Scottish Covenanters. They rolled up their sleeves and they applied these truths and they fought. And here we are with this experiment in liberty that's lasted 241 years. It's an amazing gift that we've been given. And so that's that epic in, in history. And now we're going to take a look at another crisis in American history that is fascinating. And, uh, and I call this uh, the, the year 19, uh, 1968. 1968. I was four years old in 1968. Um, there was, uh, the, the Beatles had the number one hit. There was a number of songs. Uh, Jim Morrison of the Doors had a song. Uh, I mean, it was, it was kind of a heavy era. But prior to 1968, this, this is setting kind of the tone for 1968. What occurred in uh, 1968 followed or, or came after uh, this series of events. And the one I want to focus on is this one. Does anyone recognize that guy? Yes. Yuri Gagarin, the first man into space. Yuri Gagarin. Now, Yuri Gagarin, interestingly enough, was attributed with the idea of saying, I have flown up to space and yet I didn't see God anywhere. Yuri Gagarin didn't say that. He was actually a Russian Orthodox, a devout man. Uh, you read his history, and this is a man, even in Soviet Union, um, believed in God, which was the antithesis of what you're allowed to do. But Nikita Khrushchev, who had been, who was the premier of Russia, um, Nikita Khrushchev was raised by his mother, who was a Baptist. He had gone to Sunday school, memorized scriptures, knew scriptures really well, could recite some of the gospels by memory, um, and was, was so opposed to religion that he was the one who did the greatest attack on religious freedom in Russia and purged many of the churches. And the majority of the churches were uh, removed as a result of Nikita Khrushchev's efforts. And um, Nikita Khrushchev was the premier when uh, Yuri Gagarin went into space. And it was Nikita Khrushchev who said, why didn't you step on the brakes in front of God? Meaning he wasn't there and we all know that. He said, here is Gagarin who flew up to space and yet even he didn't see God anywhere. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev in this commitment to communism and this idea of removing God, that man is supreme. And we've covered all the different types of governments. Remember, we, we talked about autonomy, theonomy, and heteronomy. In heteronomy, you've got socialism, communism, fascism, all the isms over here that are man-centered governments. And over here, you have uh, a constitutional republic, which means we are all created equal, not in capacity, but in dignity. And this creates a constitutional republic of a representative form of government that you can't do to me anything that I wouldn't give you permission to do. And so we operate in that context, understanding that our rights come from God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That doesn't exist in any of these isms, fascism, communism, socialism. God doesn't exist. The only rights you have is what the government gives you. And, and all men are equal. Some are more equal than others. George Orwell, right? Animal Farm, anyone? Anyone? Bueller, good. Okay. <laughs> so here we have this push of, of, uh, uh, of, of communism on the world. And here in 1961, Yuri Gagarin uh, is the first one into space. As a, and, and, the, and the Soviets are excelling in space exploration, and they're putting Americans to shame. 
America is struggling at this point. They're in, in, in a, a terrible situation. John F. Kennedy says, we're going to send a man to the moon. They were so far behind in the space race that they put all gears moving, and it's kind of watching America as we're trillions of dollars in debt, and, and all of a sudden, a uh, president changes. The stock market goes up 5,000 points since he's been in office. Taxes are reduced, and we're watching as the, the wheels of industry are starting to move, and, and today we heard about a billion dollars being invested in infrastructure and a number of things happening as Americans are being given the freedom, they're slashing regulations, and business starts moving again, right? Well, this is, this is where America was. They're, they're, they're at a crossroads. And the reason why they're at a crossroads is because this constitutional republic was threatened to be destroyed. And the reason why it was destroyed is because Nikita Khrushchev had a purpose to do this. And this is Nikita Khrushchev in 1959. He says, your children's children will live under communism. You Americans are so gullible. No, you won't accept communism outright, but we'll keep feeding you small doses of socialism until you will finally wake up and find that you're all, you already have communism. We won't have to fight you. We'll so weaken your economy until you fall like overripe fruit into our hands. And, and, uh, and, and, and in 1958... There was a book written by an FBI agent, um, and, and he had listed 50 ways in which the infiltration of communism would hit America, and I wanted to list three of them for you. Uh, this is one of the, the, the guy's name was um, uh, Cleon Skusen, and, and he wrote this book, Naked Communism, a 1958 FBI agent, and, he, and he's a theorist. He laid out these 50 things that he had gathered through his research, and here is uh, number 27 and 28. Number 27 how communism will infiltrate America and what they'll do. He said, infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion, discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for intellectual maturity, which does not need a religious crutch. 28, eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools on the ground that it violates the principles of separation of church and state. We've covered the separation of church and state. Ten, the first 10 years of the congressional record, nothing in regards to the separation of church and state. I do believe in the separation of church and state, keeping the state out of the church, not the church out of the state. And as we've gone through this, only a moral people can govern a republic. We saw that with John Adams. We've done our homework, folks. We've, we've, we've been educated as we spent time here in the many past weeks, Right? So we look at this and we see why all these things are important to preserve a constitutional republic. And here you have this idea that they're going to infiltrate the, the churches. And we've watched churches in America be all about the gospel, be all about the social gospel. Don't involve in politics. Don't involve in social issues. Avoid these cultural mountains of influence to the point where the church becomes irrelevant. I shared with you a statistic in 1967 when Calvary chapels were formed. California had the fifth largest GDP. We had the secondary school system. It was second to none in the world. It was the envy of the world. Our water delivery system, on and on and on I can go. And yet Calvary Chapel started in 67, Reagan's governor. And we watch as Calvary Chapels have a 10,000% growth, 1,600 churches around the world in 50 years. Brings us to 2017 where we're coming to a close of that. And watching 10,000% growth, and that's conversion growth, not transfer growth, and yet Chuck did not want to participate in politics because in 1967, when he started and he started to reach out to these disenfranchised hippies that didn't want anything to do with the establishment. And I'll tell you why in a minute. 68 was a tough year. And all these folks were, were, were dropping acid and hanging out and going to find themselves and getting into Eastern religions. And they had dis, moved away from the established church and didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And Christianity just started to t tumble because of the infiltration, what was occurring in America from all these things listed and this concerted effort to try to bring down this constitutional republic. And Chuck stays away from politics. And here we are in 2017. What's been the byproduct of that of churches not participating in politics in accordance with um, number 27? We, we're no longer the fifth largest GDP. We're now, what, ninth? We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We lead the nation in taxes, right? We're the authors of no-fault divorce, which Reagan signed into law. We're, we're the authors of transgender bathroom bills, and we lead the nation in abortion. So where's the power of the gospel? And, and, and they've infiltrated the church and making the church irrelevant in America today, okay? Because all we do is the gospel. It's pietism, separating the secular from the holy. And one of the reasons why pastors don't want to engage in politics is because it's hard. You've got to do homework, Yeah? I mean, you got to educate yourself on the issues. And so here you see 27 already in, in act in 1967-68. And look at number 28, eliminate prayer uh, and, and religious expression in schools. We've watched that. Uh, Brown, um, 
Brown versus the Board of Education? Yeah. And they removed prayer from schools. Who was the one that, that did, did anyone ever hear Madeline Murray O'Hare? Uh, an avowed atheist. We'll see her in a minute. Stay with me. Here's another one. This is number 42 of 50. Create the impression that violence and insurrection are legitimate aspects of the American tradition that students and special interest groups should rise up and use united force to solve economic, political, or social problems. We see Antifa. We see this idea that if you don't like how it is, just rebel and get the public opinion. Don't debate it. Don't, don't seek truth. Don't try to have the right and the left where they come together across the aisles and work through these issues. And this idea of creating a government where the system is slow, but it's, it's methodical because we, the people, hold the authority, but we've given it to our representatives, right? And, and, and we've, we've done a checks and balance where we have executive, legislative, judicial, and so each of these branches are holding, holding each other in accountability. They bypass all that, and they use crisis to influence and push their agenda, right? So these are things they wanted to do, and it was in full force in America in 1968. So as a result, I wanted to share this with you, and I'm going to have to go through this very carefully, uh, and I listed it out. But the first one I wanted to talk about was... Um, in January 30th of 1968, so we're going to begin. This is the year of crisis in America, 1968. The very first thing to hit America in 1968, and my father had three tours of Vietnam. Uh, it was called the Tet Offensive. Uh, this was the Vietnamese New Year. Uh, we had American troops there on a police action. It was one of the largest movement of American troops. Johnson, Lyndon Johnson was president. Uh, we were under the assumption that we were holding off communism. And while we're holding off communism in all these other countries, because they had the domino theory mm-hmm. that if this nation fell, that nation would fall, the next nation would fall. And we're fighting communism, communism abroad, but here in our own country, all of the strings are unraveling, and this constitutional republic is unraveling, and the infiltration and the, and the things that are occurring. And so the Tet Offensive occurs, and, and it is a, it's a bloodbath. Uh, they, they conquer some of the South Vietnamese locations, um, they, the North Vietnamese do wholesale slaughter, um, executions, um, uh, the Americans are caught off guard, but yet they, they respond, they push back the, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, uh, advances, they establish borders, the war continues. But what happens with the Tet Offensive is it, it in the American psyche, all of a sudden we realize we're not going to win this war. And so protests begin across the country. Um, the, the Kent state massacre, we watch all these things occurring, Berkeley's in flames, Everyone is rebelling. Nobody wants the war anymore. I remember being with my father after he'd come back from his second tour of Vietnam. And I remember walking through Lindbergh Field and he was spit on. I remember being in Washington, D.C. in 1969 at the Washington Monument uh, on American Day. And we're all gathered. My father's in his full military uniform and the protesters are all over the place. And my dad, I'm hiding behind my dad as things are being thrown at us. And this is America, 1968, 69. It's unraveling at the seams. And to make matters worse, not only the Tet Offensive and the fear that we are engaging in a war that we're not going to win and it's going to be a bloodbath, we're losing our sons and daughters. It's a political war and there's all kinds of issues and America doesn't have the stomach for it. And then this occurs. It was the My Lai Massacre. In the My Lai Massacre, uh, between 347 and 504 Vietnamese villagers, women, children were killed uh, on March 16th, 1968. Um, and it was, it was awful. Um, what was the guy's name that did it? Callie. Yeah. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Callie. And, uh, you know, it came out later in that year, but this occurred in March of 1968. America is unraveling. And, um, we, we watch as civil rest starts to just ramp up in unbelievable proportions. And, um, you have in August of 1968, the Democratic National Convention, which ends up being in riots. And one of the reasons why I was in riots, and you can see this, uh, this was the Democratic National Convention. Uh, people are rioting. There's blood. It's massive. Here they are out in front. And one of the reasons why um, the riots had occurred is twofold. One of them was in, I want to say April 4th of, of 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. And um, the nation was divided racially. Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot. Um, Everyone is disillusioned. It was tragic and awful. As a result of it, the Civil Rights Act was established in 1968 through all this mess. But what had occurred after his 
his assassination is they began to burn and, and, and cities burned. Riots occurred. This is Baltimore, similar to today. And, and what created the havoc and, and the riots at the Democratic National Convention is prior to 1968, we had lost John F. Kennedy. Uh, he had been uh, assassinated and, um, and the nation was disillusioned and running for the presidency in the Democratic Party was his brother, Robert Kennedy, and he was assassinated in 1968. He was killed. And so you have two candidates remaining for the Democratic National Committee. You have George McGovern, who wants to pull out of Vietnam, and you have Hubert Humphrey, who wants to follow the same principles as Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson knew that he was, his days were numbered. He had resigned. And so you have these two candidates, and the party's divided, and they're struggling, and they're siding with Hubert Humphrey, but everybody wants McGovern. And uh, they ultimately go with Hubert Humphrey, and it's a landslide for somebody to be elected for the very first time who had been a one-time loser as he had run prior, prior against Kennedy, and that was... Richard Nixon, and he wins in 1968. And the seams are unraveling. Um, here we have Madeline Murray O'Hare, who I covered earlier. She is an avowed atheist. That's her younger son. That's uh, her granddaughter. And uh, they, they began to call for the removal of anything Christian in the public square. And they removed prayer from school. They started to go after anything that had a vestige of Christianity, saying that atheists need to be represented and so the idea is we're atheists, we don't want God, it's a violation of our civil rights. Where do they get those civil rights? Well, from the scriptures, but we don't want the scriptures, we just want, and, and she'd actually tried to immigrate. I want to read this to you. This was by her son, who I've had the privilege to meet. Uh, this is her older son, William, and uh, William uh, was the one that was used by Madeline Murray O'Hare to remove prayer from schools, and I've met the man. Uh, today he's a Christian, and uh, he... Um, he struggles by carrying this legacy of his mother and all the misery that uh, came with his life. I'll read this to you. Now deceased Madeline, once known as the most hated woman in America and a title she apparently took great pleasure in, fought a war against school prayer and won. It was further ruled in her favor that official Bible reading in American public schools in 1963 and onward would cease. According to her son, Murray, now 70 years of age, as captured on film while still a school pupil during this whole affair. I am an atheist and I wish to be an atheist and I do not feel it would be appropriate for me to stand up and say the Lord's Prayer. He was told to say that by his mother. He did. It started this whole thing. Madeline subsequently founded the American Atheists and sued the city of Baltimore demanding that the state collect taxes from the tax-exempt Catholic Church. She also sued NASA, arguing that public prayer ought to be banned by government employees in outer space. I'll cover that in a moment. She would also challenge the words under God and the Pledge of Allegiance, as well as the motto, in God we trust on currency. However, things took a turn when in 1995, Madeline and her son John, granddaughter Robin, who were in the previous picture, were kidnapped and murdered by former American atheist employee David Waters. Uh, their bodies were mutilated. He was a violent man. He hated them. It was awful. Uh, but Murray, uh, now matured and all the more wiser, is willing to look back on these events and describe to us what really happened and perhaps proving to be quite the slap to the face of his mother, Murray has since denounced his atheism and become a Christian. He has penned a book called My Life Without God and is also the chairman of the Religious Freedom Coalition. Nonetheless, Murray explains the dynamics of his family during his childhood. My family was definitely different. My mother tried to defect to the Soviet Union. She was a Marxist leader in the community, our neighborhood, was for the most part immigrants from many of the communist countries like Poland, from Hungary, from East Germany, and to have somebody in their neighborhood who wanted to make this country like that one in, uh, resulted in pretty much a lot of animosity towards the family and towards me. Murray grew up an atheist and was part of his mother's plan to get schools to give up prayer. So what changed his mind? He goes on to explain how he came to Christ and what had occurred. And when he comes to Christ and he gives his heart to the Lord, um, it's interesting, he said... Um, let me read this to you. Uh, Murray's 1980 conversion occurred while his mother was still alive. Apparently it didn't go down all that well. And learning of this, she commented, and this is what she said when she found out her oldest son had become a Christian. One could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother. I guess I repudiate him entirely and completely for now and all times. He is beyond human forgiveness. 
These are undoubtedly some harsh words on the part of a parent, so one would wish to know how it went down with Murray. And he explains, oddly, it didn't hurt that much because of home was that I was raised in, the number of times in which I had done something that was perhaps wrong in her eyes as a child, and after which she looked at me and said, I wish abortion had been legal when I was carrying you. She told me that to my face when I was younger, so this statement was nothing more than a continuation of that But that is the type of home where the only thing that is important is that those material things, those materialist philosophies or government or statism, uh, when only those things are important to you, the feelings of people, of individuals aren't that important to you. Murray captured all this in his book, My Life Without God. Uh, My first book, which is autobiographical, has been in print for over three decades now. And interestingly enough, it is as pertinent today as when I published it because people do not understand what the real uh, case was about to remove prayer from public schools. They think it was about separation of church and state, and it was not about separation of church and state. There were many other issues, particularly from my mother who filed the lawsuit. The issue was a hatred for God and a hatred for capitalism and a hatred for a democratic republic. She was a utopian. She was involved in magic thought when it came to economic matters and religious matters. She uh, she, though, uh, she thought that a human condition could be created on a utopia condition where the most intelligent, namely her and her friends, could devise a system that would equal God's system in heaven. And that there was no need for God, no need for capital. There was no need for any kind of competition and that all that, the, that could uh, be supplied. Her actual original reason for bringing this lawsuit was to get God out of the picture because she thought that the church was a the one of the three-legged pillars that supported capitalism. And by eliminating prayer out of schools, getting God out of the public, does this sound familiar to 27 and 28? That would eliminate the capitalist system. She was basically an avowed Marxist, a utopianist. And this is why I understand that issue so well, having been brought up in that type of environment. There's a lot to chew on here, but what I find truly remarkable, or at least what I undoubtedly take away from Murray's story, is that Murray has come out of it as a man of peace, wisdom, and a love for others. It's truly remarkable. And so this is her and her older son. He's the only one that lived of the family. He's the one who became a Christian. And as Madeline Murray O'Hare had this effect, not only did she, was she able to remove prayer from schools, we watched all of the social uh, barometers, Uh, teen pregnancy went up, teen drug addiction went up, everything, SAT scores dropped. We just watched this whole implosion in in the American school system as a result of this and this infiltration. Well, not only that, the churches were adversely affected, as we saw in item number 27. Uh, The churches started to embrace the social gospel, and this is what happened. Uh, This is the the decline of the church and religion, 60 years, 1962, there's a slight rise, and then all of a sudden you see uh, 1968 start to occur, this infiltration, you watch the American church decline rapidly. One in particular is the United Methodist Church. At the time that they joined with the Brethren, uh, the church had a membership of almost 13 million people, and they have continually dropped and not had a single increase in attendance uh, since 1968, and they're now down to 7 million attendees. They've lost almost half of their church as a result of embracing the uh, social gospel and moving away from scriptures. Uh, this is uh, Mr. M- Mr. Murray today. Um, I've met him. He's a really cool guy. And it brings us to this point at 735 tonight, where we're going to talk about Christmas in 1968. America's unraveling at the seams. Communism is infiltrated. We're watching everyone fighting. I was old enough to remember many portions of this time. Some of you are older to realize even how bad it was. And America was at a crisis. We're sending men to space. We're fighting foreign wars. At the same time, the fabric of our country is falling apart. The churches are declining. They're not addressing the issues. They're not engaging in the cultural mountains of influence. We've stepped out. We've abdicated our responsibility. There's no transformation of the culture. The morality of, and we have the sexual revolution as we covered before, where you see Hugh Hefner, who is a descendant of William Bradford. And here he is. He's, he's um, hurt by his fiance, who ended up having, uh, an, um, in a sense, an adulterous relationship. And then when they got married and she confessed to him, he was so hurt that he called off the marriage, started Playboy magazine, started the sexual revolution, and everything in America in the 60s was all about sex, selling sex. And we build this iconic industry where you're selling sex, which is the least common denominator, and that's that, that libido dominandi. 
We get this concept of libido where you dominate someone by your sexuality. And this libido dominandi is this desire to rule and to have authority. And so men start to suppress women. Uh, Women talk about the sexual revolution. The birth control pill is established. And everybody is just checking out and going their own way. What's fascinating is they move away from the establishment in America and all these foundations. But Americans begin to congregate towards salvation. And that's where Calvary Chapel's experienced 10,000% growth. We go through this and we're returning to a relationship with God, but we don't see the tangible result in engaging culture once again to, to turn the tide of the destruction of a government that has afforded us 241 years of freedom and unbelievable innovation. And America starts to turn a corner and the wheels of industry begin to move. And this vision established by John F. Kennedy is followed through. And we have the very first human being, or three of them, to go around the moon, the orbital portion of the moon. And Apollo 8 is the first with Borman, Lovell, and Anders. And Lovell would be on Apollo 13. You remember Apollo 13, right? And if you haven't seen it, watch the movie. Lovell would be the one to, to cause them to survive and to get back to Earth safely when the systems failed. He actually learned how to do it when he uh, was trying to orbit the moon and inadvertently had deleted the computer programming, which back then was minimal, and it turned off their trajectory, and he had to manually put them all back in. And because he learned how to do that when he was on Apollo 13, he was able to use the skills by his mistake to cause that capsule of Apollo 13 to survive. But these three astronauts, Borman, Lovell, and Anders uh, of Apollo 8, are the first human beings to ever go around the moon and uh, the orbit of the moon and to return to earth in this figure eight concept. You can see this here, uh, Apollo 8, the lunar orbital plan and the profile of it and what they did. And as they, they orbited the moon, it was so fascinating because they were, they were inspecting where the, pre, the, the following capsules would land on the moon to be able to place a man on the moon. This was a very key and instrumental launch by the space um, movement to, to get somebody to walk. And as we would know, Neil Armstrong would take that first step on the moon. And it was a result of Apollo 8's um, operating uh, and, and spying out where the, the, the capsule would land. And um, they did this all on Christmas Eve of 1968. And what's fascinating about that is that as they're orbiting the moon on Christmas Eve, 1968, a nation that is imploding and unraveling, communism is infiltrating, this idea that there is no God, Yuri Gagarin, had, uh, through Khrushchev, had said, I've been to space and there is no God. Communism is declaring their supremacy over all of mankind, and mankind is putting their boot on the neck of humanity and the freedom of man. These three astronauts who were raised in a different generation and knew a different way. Two of them Eagle Scouts. All three Christians. As they begin to orbit the moon on December 24th, 1968, a billion people tuned in to see what they call the earth rise. We watch the sunrise and the moon rise. A billion people tuned in to see this picture for the first time in the history of the world. A billion people, the largest audience recorded in the world at the time. A billion people. And they began to speak to the earth on December 24th, 1968. And and I want to read to you this. The Associated Press reported that to commemorate the event, Lovell joined local high school students and a parent at the museum with each taking turns uh, recounting what they had done in 1968 on Christmas Eve. Lovell said at the time the astronauts weren't sure who would be listening and how the broadcast would be taken. A billion people. The AP account continued recalling that the now iconic Earthrise photo was taken by Frank Borman that same day, an image that served to reinforce the powerful truth of, the, of what the men had recited to the world below. William Anders began the astronaut special Christmas message back to earth 
And uh, he said, this is for all the people on the earth. The crew of Apollo 8 has a message they would like to send to you. Even 45 years ago, there were atheists, malcontents, poised to complain about such demonstrations of goodwill. They were led by the founding mother of militant American secularism, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, who collected 28,000 signatures on a lawsuit petition demanding that the astronauts or any other government employee be prohibited from doing what they did while on duty. And in response, the Americans sent NASA more than 2.5 million letters and petitions in support of what the astronauts did. And O'Hare's lawsuit was ultimately dismissed by the Supreme Court. Made it all the way up there, which is ridiculous. In the years ahead, the U.S. Postal Service issued a six-cent postage stamp that featured the Earthrise photo along with the words that these men will share momentarily in honor of the three astronauts and the day in history when they acknowledge what they did. And so we are at 742. I want to conclude tonight with a broadcast that was live on December 24th, 1968. Are we ready to have it? Let's lower the lights, listen carefully. This is what the three men said to a billion people on Christmas Eve, 1968. Turn it up. Merry Christmas. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. His word does not return void. A billion people heard that. Many trapped in the the despair of communism. And the burning in the soul of every human being is a desire for freedom. I was asked to speak at the menorah lighting 
Orthodox Jews invited a Christian pastor to come and light the menorah candle at the Jans Mall, Rabbi Brisky. He said, would you say some things about religious liberty? I saw people who've been persecuted, despised. They have to leave Europe now to go back to Israel. And I just shared with them the words of George Washington on August 17, 1790, in the dedication of the synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. And the idea was you're safe here. And we will not tolerate the persecution. And we will grant religious freedom. The only thing we ask of you is that you be good citizens to protect that. And for 241 years, people have found safe haven. Give us your tired, your poor. They found refuge here when six million Jews were murdered. They came here. This is a land of freedom. But unless we establish these truths and protect them and take to heart and contend for the ideology and the purpose of man, there are two warring factions. One is there is no God and the other there is a God. One declares I've been to space and I haven't seen him. The other went to space to declare his existence. You are citizens of that nation that declared the existence of God. In this coming year, 2018, let the Lord inspire you. 50 years will have passed in 2018. And you now have that distinct privilege to bind up the wounds of the nation and to participate in the process that this nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, not perish from the face of the earth. But it's only going to be by the due diligence and the vigilance of all of you present. Take it to heart. We'll gather and reconvene, not next week, but the week following. But I pray that you have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. Enjoy your time with your family. And thank God for the gift we've been given of this nation. May the Lord bless you and keep you. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. We finished 11 minutes early. So... I would do questions, but I just want to leave it with that. You okay with it? All right. God bless you guys. Enjoy each other's company. Go get some coffee, and we'll see you not this next Wednesday, but the Wednesday following. Merry Christmas.